Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today, I'm excited to have with me Sharon Salzberg, who many of you know as a world-renowned Buddhist teacher, especially in the loving-kindness tradition. She co-founded the Insight Meditation Society at Barry, Massachusetts with Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein. She's the author of, of a large number of books, her most recent, Real Change. We're going to speak to Sharon not only about her book and some of her other books, but also about her history in India, a bit about her life and what changed her and allowed her to develop her own spiritual practice. I'm excited to have her with us today, and I think all of us will learn something. So please uh, welcome Sharon to the show. I was wondering if you might, because I'm always interested in people's backstory as to sort of what drove them to where they are today. And, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about your own backstory, because oftentimes people who give or are motivated to care have actually pain and suffering in their own backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I think that's very true. It's also the case that, and you may know this better than I, I was, I was recently talking to somebody and he, he quoted some study because one of the questions is, and I will get to my story in a minute, but one of the questions is, you know, when there's the sort of an immensity of suffering, like we see right now, how many people hold back because it feels like what any one person, what I can do, could never be enough. It's so meager. It's so insufficient. And this person was quoting a study saying that the people who tend to give nonetheless in those circumstances or try to make things different, even in a small way, are usually people who've suffered a lot themselves because they themselves have been on the receiving end and they know that one gesture, one act of being listened to, one acknowledgement actually does make a difference. It can make a huge difference, a profound difference that, uh, I mean, literally could change someone's life. And it's interesting you point that out also because we see people who have suffered, who are actually in poverty, who will give the shirt off their backs and we see extraordinary people, or I should say, we see people of extraordinary wealth who, frankly, sometimes are the uh, greediest and least generous people you will have ever met. And it's sort of an interesting paradox. Yeah, well, I, I really understand that. I understand that both from my own life. I understand that from being in countries like Burma, doing meditation practice where you know, every morsel of food you get in a country like Burma is an offering because you're not charged anything in order to be there. And Burma, certainly I was there in the 80s, uh, was certainly one of the poorest countries in the world. And people would come to watch you eat their offering. And sometimes it would be an individual or a family or a whole village would come together. And, and they would be so happy at the chance to have offered you food and to kind of fortify you for your meditation practice. And, uh, and you know, being there day after day after day and then coming back here and, and realizing, oh, you know, those people really had nothing and they were giving the best of what they could. And 
people hear sometimes with objectively so much more have such an inner feeling of poverty and not having enough that it's really hard to give anything away. I'll comment on that before you go back into your backstory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because we'll spend an hour just... <laughs> well, just let me make this comment because you're right. I mean, these people don't understand what they're craving or what it can be that emptiness can be filled with. So they think, unfortunately, that so many people look up to rich people. And so they have this. So they think that the more they acquire, the more people look up to them will fill that emptiness. And of course, it never does. And all it does is just create this endless cycle for these people who I'm sure you know, many of them are absolutely miserable people. That's true. Okay, my backstory. <laughs> I went to India as a college student. I was 18 years old, um, and that was 1970. I had taken an Asian philosophy course just because there was a philosophy requirement at the university. And honestly, as far as I can tell, looking back, it was kind of arbitrary that it was an Asian philosophy course uh, because it fit my schedule nicely. And I thought, oh, that's good. That's not Tuesday. Uh, I'll do that one. And the course totally changed my life in several ways. One was um, in the section on the Buddhist teaching. Of course, they, you know, they started with the Buddha's very unafraid, unashamed acknowledgement of the suffering in life. And I, like many people, had, as you know, had had a, a very traumatic childhood. I wrote this book called Faith at one point, which was about my own faith journey. And I look back and I realized by the time I went to college at the age of 16, I had lived in five different family configurations, each one of which had changed because somebody died or entered the mental health system. There was some really traumatic incident. And it just kept happening. And like many families, mine was one where this was never, ever spoken about. And so I didn't know what to do with all of that pain inside of me. And, and it was never acknowledged externally till I got to that moment. And here was the Buddha saying, in effect, the way I heard it was, it's not just you. You're not weird. You don't have to feel so left out. You don't have to feel kind of discarded by life. This is a part of life. And that was like an immense liberation for me right there. It was like a moment of belonging that was very, very different than anything I had felt before. And then I heard in the context of that class that there were methods, there were practices called meditation. And if you practice them, you could actually be a lot happier. So I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. I did not see it anywhere. This is 1970. So I created a project, an independent study project, and I presented it saying, I want to go to India to, to learn meditation. And education was kind of wild then, you know, and so they said, okay. So uh, I went in the fall of 1970 with my student loans and my scholarships. I went off to India to learn how to meditate. And that was really it. And it took a while to find what I really wanted, which was something very practical and direct and not highly philosophical. And I wasn't interested in becoming a Buddhist or Hindu or rejecting anything else. I just wanted to learn that how-to. And uh, that finally happened. I did my first meditation retreat in January of 1971. And like many people going to college in Buffalo, 
I stayed a little longer than a year away, but I did go back <laughs> and I sort of finagled the system enough so that I ended up with two years of independent study credit and graduated. Then I went right back to India to continue studying. So I finally was leaving India in 1974 for what I thought was a very brief visit back to the States where I was going to you know, get a new visa and, and do different things. And then I was going to go back to India for the rest of my life. And I went to see one of my teachers, who's a woman named Deepama, which is like a nickname, Deepa's mother, who was living in Calcutta. And I really just went to get her blessing for my very brief trip back to the U.S. And, and she said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. I and mean, it was ludicrous to me that I'd be capable of, of teaching. And, and then she said two things to me that were very important. One was, she said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And it was really the first time in my life that I looked back at, at those early years and thought of them as having given me something that, that might be valuable in terms of my work with others. And then she said, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking. You can't do it. It's going to stop you. And I left her room, which was, we would call it a tenement up on the fourth floor, uh, went down this dark, dank staircase thinking, no, I won't. I'm not going to teach. That's ridiculous. And I came back to the States and eventually you know, went to see my friend Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met in India, and met Jack Cornfield at the time I was visiting Joseph and things just started rolling along. We get an invitation to lead a retreat. So we did that one and that was over. And then we get another letter saying, Hey, could you come here and lead a retreat? And we did that one. And one day I woke up and I thought, Oh, she was right. You know, like my life is here and, and in doing this. Wow. Well, it, it is interesting how, again, sort of an event can change an individual's life. And here is, you know, this one instance where, while as incredulous as it seemed to you, it changed your life. I wanted to talk a little bit about your new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. I think you were kind enough to send me real happiness and real love. So it was nice to get this and I appreciate it. I know you wrote this before the pandemic, but in so many ways, it's extraordinarily relevant. One of the things I've been interested in is this idea of self-agency. Maybe you could talk about that for a few minutes and uh, educate people as to what that really means. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. My fear, of course, was that I had written a completely irrelevant book, you know, because by the time it came out and it was delayed in terms of publication, life was so extreme here. And I thought, oh. And in fact, it was all written, except for the preface, it was all written before the pandemic. And a friend of mine, a journalist, was reading it in order to excerpt it for something before pub date. And he said he really liked the book, but he kept reading the examples I used, thinking, that's what made you anxious? Wait till you see what's coming, you know? So that's when I went back to the publisher and I said, <laughs> since there's a delay, would it be okay if I wrote a, a preface, basically? And try to contextualize what, what's going on. The idea of agency is very, very important, both in my own mind and in the book. One of the things I say in the book is how much I love the Statue of Liberty. You can't quite see it. There's one over there, a little 
thing that <laughs> gave me. Um, uh, you know, and I have for my whole life, basically. And there's something about that symbol of welcome, of compassion, and basically her saying, you belong here. You can find a home here. Even you, that no one else wants. I want you. But what I hadn't actually realized until I was working on the book so much was that she's actually a woman on the move. Her, she's in mid-stride. Her leg is up, you know. And I mean, I guess I knew that, but I would, you always, I would think of her crown or the poem or, you know, something like that. And she's actually in mid-stride. So it's a very active welcome. It's it's really not just laying back. It's like, hey, yeah, you're fine, you're here, you know. And and that sense of agency is, I think, so crucial for us to discover. Some people don't trust that, and they think it it's like making excuses for a system, say a system of oppression or inequality, saying, well, it's kind of up to you. But it's not really that. I don't think it's that unbalanced at all. I think uh, there's something about our potential as a human being, which we don't necessarily actualize. And it goes back, for example, to the people I was talking about in the beginning. You know, I know so many meditators who do have a kind of genuine compassion that deepens and develops, but they sort of don't know what to do, you know, and and it feels like it could never be enough. And so they don't do anything. And I think that sense of agency is is what we actually need because we need one another. And if more of us could develop that conviction that seemingly small deed is essential to do, whatever it is that's right in front of us, then I think we would see more change in this world. No, I think you're right. And again, as we were talking about earlier, people don't often understand how the smallest gesture uh, can really affect someone. I mean, simply every day saying hello to someone who uh, may seem lonely or reaching out or just looking around you, uh, let's say in a supermarket and, and being in the checkout line and see someone who actually can't afford to pay and pay. All of those things, uh, as you know, the Dalai Lama says, uh, uh, being compassionate is uh, one of the only instances where it's okay to be selfish. And because, you know, when you care for others, when you do these actions, it is so beneficial to yourself. And that's uh, oftentimes what people don't understand. But the other aspect of agency is how people don't feel it's even a possibility. And what I mean by that is, unfortunately, so many people, in fact, I would say not so many people, every person has this negative self-dialogue. And when you have that self-dialogue, of course, if you believe it, you know, when you say, I can, it's not possible, then that becomes your reality. Maybe you can comment on that and your own thoughts about perhaps techniques to overcome that. Well, some of that, I think, uh, certainly in my experience, has been like the gift of mindfulness, because you get to see for yourself. It's like being a myth buster, you know, like all the things were taught, like what you just said, that you know, if you're generous, uh, you'll end up deprived. Or to have kindness is, it's all right. It's not great. You know, I mean, it's kind of a weak thing. And people will step on you. They'll take advantage of you. Or it's a dog-eat-dog world and you got to get ahead. Or if you hold on tightly enough, you'll 
not die or whatever. You know, like there's so many myths and so much really frankly deceit that we are fed in different levels. Maybe your family, maybe not the culture, very likely, and so many stories. And so to be able to see from ourselves is a very precious thing. You know, like if you sit and actually look at something that we have been taught perhaps is incredibly strong, like being bent on revenge, you know, and that vengefulness, nurse it, grow it, cultivate it. If you actually look at it, and it's so brittle and it's so lonely and it's not that strong, actually, or so many of us have been taught that compassion is, is a kind of weakness. And you take a look at it, just sit and be with it in a, a genuine, honest way. And you say, look at that. That's a strength. You know, and, and what I was thinking when, when you said that about how it, it's a selfish act is, um, is very true. And I'm speaking to you from Barry, Massachusetts, next door to the Insight Meditation Society. And I have been here basically since March 14th with one little trip to New York. Um, I have a, a rented apartment in New York City. And I spent the month of February in California and flew back to New York March 2nd. And uh, I taught some very large programs, sort of a miracle, you know, poorly ventilated rooms and really crowded. And then I was in New York City and I, this was just the Monday after I flew back. So um, it's maybe like the, the 9th or something like that of March. And I was teaching at a place where uh, the way they hold it is that the speaker sits in the audience until they're introduced, and then they go up on the stage. So I was sitting in the audience, and there was a woman sitting next to me who was phenomenally anxious. And this was also a time where, like, who knew? You know, it's like, you know, don't touch anything, you know. And, I mean, it was it was a really scary time. And and she was phenomenally anxious. Like, I don't know if I should come, but then I came. Maybe it was a mistake. I don't know what to do. Like, this is unbearable. And I said to her, well, you know, there are these breathing techniques you could try that might really, you know, kind of chill out your nervous system. And she wasn't interested. And I said, well, there's a loving kindness meditation that, you know, will really help you feel more connected to others and more at ease. And she wasn't interested. And then I just looked at her and out of the greatest intuition, I just said, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. It's like she became radiant. And she said, you know, I have this elderly neighbor and maybe I can slip a note under her door, see if I can get her some groceries. And I said, look at that. That was so interesting. You know, it really does bring us back to a place that's not broken, that moment of caring, of generosity. And it doesn't have to be material generosity, but it's like that that sense of giving. It restores something inside of us, even if momentary. And that's a very healing place to be. No, in fact, uh, it's interesting when, you know, I interact with people who are depressed. In some ways, it's a very selfish action because it's all about you. <laughs> and then this leads, of course, to rumination, to reemphasize how worthless you are. <laughs> and it's amazing when you offer these people this gift of going outside yourself how profound a change 
actually can very rapidly occur. And I think that's an important aspect of people who have sort of gone down this path of depression. Now, I don't want to imply for serious or profound or uh, drug-resistant depression that will help because there are a whole variety of other physiologic factors. But, you know, for the average person who's dealing with stress and anxiety and sort of this depression about their situation and beginning to ruminate on that, I think that can be a very, very powerful component to your own healing. When, at least for myself, and of course I, I meditate, but you know, I still have a tendency to sort of grab onto these negative emotions or these sort of events that are happening in my mind. What are the best techniques you found for sort of dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, it, it's two things within the meditation context. You know, one is kind of a, a direct mindfulness practice in that Sometimes it's not the negative, so-called negative emotion. And actually, I wouldn't call it a negative emotion, but a painful emotion. And that's actually a translation that we encourage people to do because the natural, the totally normal thing is to call it negative or bad even, you know. And to every time I see myself do that, say, no, it's just painful. It's painful when I get lost in it, when I get overwhelmed by it. And so... The arising of something, even very strongly, is not considered the problem. It's the way we relate to it that can become a problem. Like, do we take it to heart? Do we identify with it? Do we build a whole self-image around it? Do we build a future around it? This is all I'll ever feel. Do we add a sense of isolation? I am the only one. You know, so uh, sometimes those things are a lot more painful than actually the original emotion, and so we would say from the point of view of mindfulness, look for the add-ons. Look for what your relationship to that painful emotion is composed of because it may be something you really want to just start to relinquish. And forgive yourself for what you're feeling because um, I don't have the cup here with me, but uh, I have a friend who started to make cups with sayings I commonly use on it. And so I have a cup that says, we feel what we feel. We just feel what we feel. And and that's it. But what we do with that feeling is is the question. You talk about agency. You know, do I take it to heart? Do I act from it? You know, do I write all my friends and say you're worthless or whatever? You know, um, <laughs> or can I be with it? With it? and then the other thing I would do is really try to cultivate some kindness toward myself. You know those moments when you realize that maybe you're learning the same thing again and again and again and again? So this was one of my big things because I can look back and say, well, in 1972, this one teacher said this to me. And around 1975, this other teacher said that other thing to me. But really, when I look at those two pieces of advice, they're kind of the same, <laughs> you know, so and I can just keep tracing it on. So it's maybe best encapsulated with um, this one teacher I had, this man named Manindra, who said to me, basically, why are you so upset about this thought that has come up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say at 3.15, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? No, because when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. And do we ever do anything to try to affect those conditions? Certainly we do. But we're not going to have ultimate control no matter what we do. We might 
you know, not go to a bar, for example, you know, or, or there are lots of things we can do to help change the conditions. But in the end, when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. So what are we going to do with it? You know, can we be with that experience, with some kindness toward ourselves, some compassion? That is a very important thing. It's not just solace, but it's actually the basis for empathy, you know, to if we are cut off from our own pain and refuse to feel it or we disparage ourselves because of it or add a lot of shame or something like that, we're not going to actually have empathy for somebody else. You know, it's just not going to happen. So it's difficult and challenging, but it's actually important that we can sit with painful feeling and be with it. Well, you know, that's a good point. Uh, the distinction between negative, which of course has a negative connotation versus the reality of, of uh, simply pain and how you feel about it. It's funny, I, I tell people sometimes that events are events. And I use the analogy, it's like a photograph. It starts out black and white, but we paint it with our emotions, our painful emotions oftentimes. And then that, in the process, that becomes our memory and then when we think of the event, then all of these emotions come up. And I think that's an important truth is that events don't have a valence of positive or negative. They're simply an event. It's really how you respond to the event, how you internally process it, that pain and suffering comes from. And certainly I think that's where the extra pain and suffering comes exactly from there. You know, whether you know, state of tremendous loss is going to have a, a a painful feeling tone. I think likely it will, you know, and we shouldn't blame ourselves for that either. Uh, but we certainly add to it in so many ways. And, and then what would have been manageable and also onward leading in a way becomes uh, too much. No, I think that's the problem is sort of developing the tools that, uh, if you will, I'm not sure if the word put boundaries around our suffering, but allow us to move forward. In some ways, that's resilience. Maybe you can chat about that a little bit. I think it's resilience, and it's also a sneaky interpretation of the word happiness, you know, which is very difficult because it's like with my book, Real Happiness, which you mentioned, which came out 10 years ago. Um, wow. Yeah, it was just reissued, 10th anniversary. It had another title. I think it was called Why Meditate, well into the, the process. And then I got an advanced copy of Matthew Ricard's next book, which was called Why Meditate. So we, we had to find <laughs> another title. His book was coming out, I think, in January. Mine was coming out the following September, something like that. Or his was coming out September. Mine was coming out the following January. So the publisher came up with Real Happiness. And I was very ambivalent about the title because I thought, on the one side, that's what we all want. On the other side, a lot of people have a very uh, negative take on the word happiness. You know, that it seems superficial or uh, endless pleasure-seeking or conflict-avoidant and <clears throat> refusing to admit pain and suffering and it didn't mean that to me, but I realized I was going to have to defend the term, and I did have to defend the term as I was on a more classical book tour, you know, traveling a lot. And people kept saying things to me like, haven't you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention? 
And I said, well, I have seen it, you know, and I, I understand it. But on the other hand, what about when we are depressed and we feel overcome and we're depleted and we're burnt out? There's not a lot of wherewithal in us to try to make a difference, you know, or even to get up out of bed. And so it's not a skillful state. And I was defining happiness more as a sense of inner resource, that wherewithal, so that we can meet difficulty and adversity and conflict. And also so that we can actually enjoy pleasure. It's like if we feel we have nothing and something like a little bit nice happens, we grab it. We're so desperate that it might change, might leave us, you know. It's not really a healthy way to enjoy the good things that happen. And so I think we really need that sense of inner resource, if not to abide and to, at least to return to and, and be able to take strength from that. No, I think that's true. I, I, I certainly also, in my own mind, if you want to talk about depth of happiness, it always comes back to sort of service too. That's something that's not fleeting. That's something every time you think of it, you're joyous and you're happy and you, you you feel this good feeling about that you were able to help someone or be a benefit. And that's sort of how I look at happiness. And that's not to necessarily say, listen, I, I mean, frankly, I like sports cars, <laughs> although I don't have one at the moment. But, you know, at one point when I was uh, doing very well, blindly so, you know, I had Porsches and Ferraris and stuff like that. And, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying the niceties of life. I, I think some people get lost in this idea that, you know, if you're going to be self-aware, if you're going to care, somehow you have to take a vow of poverty. And that is only when, you know, it justifies your own worth. And uh, I think that, you know, that's not the case at all, that you can be profoundly connected, you can be profoundly self-aware, but you can also enjoy the things that you like. And uh, I, I think people get lost in that sometimes. One of the interesting, I think, paradoxes also is that you were talking about grasping for something that makes you feel good. And so many people do that, yet, of course, like everything, it's transitory. And when you're receiving it, you feel elevated and you feel powerful and you feel important. But again, it's all transitory. And frankly, in most instances, it has very little meaning. One of the things I found for myself, and I think on some levels a truism, is that while uh, it's painful, those periods of time where we are suffering, where we're in pain, actually give us an opportunity to learn, learn resilience, to learn uh, our own strengths. And I would suggest that for many people, if you reflect back after some time has passed, you realize those are the times where you've really learned something, where it's really been important, where there's been this incredible growth. You know, at the end of my pool at my house, there's a statue of Buddha. It's a modern art sculpture that's headless. And uh, it has its hands crossed and it's holding a persimmon. That's at the end of the pool. At the start of the pool, there's this jacuzzi. <laughs> And actually, a lot of times I'll go out by myself and I'll reflect on that statue. And what it means to me is, first of all, to remind me not to get lost in my head. 
That's cute. And the other is uh, the nature of a persimmon, which is, as you know, uh, they start out uh, hard and bitter, but with time, as time passes, they become soft and sweet. And I think that's sort of the nature of some of our experiences uh, in which we've suffered. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I think we can have a very weird relationship to pleasure and joy on both sides. You know, there's exactly the side that you're talking about where we cling and grab and then we're disappointed and then we cling harder because we think that's what's going to work and it never works. And then we're, you know, there's that side. But there's also the other side, which I'm sure you're seeing as I am in this time in particular. It's almost like survivor's guilt, you know, where there's so much suffering and it's so pervasive and to enjoy a moment, you know, looking at a sunset or reaching out to somebody in that small way, or it just feels selfish. It feels wrong. And and yet, again, I think we need to really pay attention to our own experience. Like, don't we need to restore now and then, you know, we need some rest. We need, we need something that will help build that sense of resource. Uh, gratitude is one example of that. You know, people think, Oh, that's stupid in a time like this, you know, like, but it actually builds us up and it gives us the energy to keep trying and, and keep uh, helping or, or just keep going in some way. And so I'm just fascinated by that sort of our, just as we can have a very distorted and usually do a very distorted relationship to pain, we can have a very distorted relationship to pleasure. I think that's right. It, it's, um, it's interesting. Uh, you were uh, talking about compassion earlier, that some people have this perception that compassion is weak and that, uh, you know, if you're kind and compassionate, people will take advantage of you. Now, no doubt that can be the case in some instances, and that certainly doesn't negate the immense power of compassion. I remember one time I was giving a talk, and sometimes in my talks, my voice will crack or I'll shed a tear. And it's obvious that, you know, I'm sitting with this. Uh, and uh, at the end of a talk I had given, this woman comes up to me and she says, you know, I felt so sorry for you up on stage because, you know, it was obvious that you were suffering. I noticed your voice cracked. This, you shed these tears. You wiped your eyes. And uh, she said, you know, it must have been horrible for you sitting there. <laughs> And then she said, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotist. And she says, if you spend three sessions with me, you can get rid of that. <laughs> and it's interesting because what I have found, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, is, you know, when you tell a powerful story and, and you actually feel it, as soon as you shed a tear, your voice cracks, everyone starts crying. And in some ways, this is this desire to be authentic in a world of inauthenticity. Maybe you can talk about sort of this idea of why people are so fearful of showing their true selves versus uh, the projection that people give of themselves. Well, you've been in the room, I'm sure, as close as you are to the Dalai Lama, times when he's just burst into tears. You know, and it's always like, the stunned silence that's just like, oh, it's always quite a moment, you know, and then he goes on. You know, it's when he's moved, not 
from kind of the horror of it all, you know, but it's when he's moved. And it is interesting, you know, we're so inhibited usually, and I'm sure it's cultural and it's, it's like a form of conditioning, you know, that I think if I was going to talk about American culture, of course, not everyone listening is necessarily from America, but um, which is the miracle of the internet, but it's the culture, obviously, I know the most about. There's such a premium on control. You know, if you get old, if you get frightened, if you get sick, even if you die, it's sort of a personal humiliation. You've lost control of the situation. And, you know, it's so unnatural. We're so disconnected from how things actually are. And so many things are interpreted right away as being having lost control. And uh, you look at how hard it is for a leader to express vulnerability, for example, like words weakness, or any of us to... Uh, I, I often think of vulnerability as honesty. It's like saying what you want, perhaps, in a conversation rather than accusing the other person of being insensitive. You know, it's much harder to say what you want uh, than it is to point to an accusing figure, but which, which is more true. And so a lot depends on our own willingness to, like, buck the tide, you know, and and be different and find strength where others may not and and just be ourselves. And, I, you know, I often think about how many times I'd read pre-pandemic that there was an epidemic of loneliness in the States, in England, in Japan, probably other places as well. And I kept reading the statistics like um, how important a sense of social connection seems to be in various clinical situations. And I kept thinking, it can't possibly just be numbers. Like, oh, I only have two friends, I need seven. You know, then I'll be okay. It must be more of an inner sense of connection that can be there, you know, whatever the situation. And and I, I think that's really true. And And if we're not ourselves, we're gonna feel very lonely. You know, so that's a part of the mix as well. No, I think that's true. It's interesting. If you look back in these parts of the world where people routinely live to be over 100, now certainly diet is important. But the other interesting thing is that these are places where people typically have spent their entire lives in a village. And since childhood, people, you know, I've seen them run around naked. They've seen them be bad. They've seen them be good. But the community typically embraces them and you never feel as if you're an outcast or not accepted. And I think in the Western world, where we're not connected to our parents and brothers and sisters and a community, this is, I think, what leads oftentimes to uh, people feeling isolated or people feeling that they're going to be judged. And that's why, you know, they arm themselves with this narrative of, who they are, what degree they have, what job they have, what position they have, as some sort of shield they carry uh, so they won't be hurt. And it's interesting that people are so fearful of this idea of being judged. You know, people have asked me, and I'm sure you probably experienced the same thing, and whether it's with the Dalai Lama or Amma, the hugging saint, or any of these types of folks who I've spent a bit of time with, they say, what's it like to be in their presence? And I say, well, in some ways, it's incredibly joyous and elevating because I don't need to carry the projection 
of myself in that situation. And it really is amazing. I was with Alma one time and I was sitting next to her on the dais or whatever, and she was holding my hand. And, you know, this was a group of a few thousand people. But some of saying, geez, you know, I, I watched and you just had this big smile on your face and you just like it was just the most amazing thing to watch. And I, I, I think, you know, that is the power of being given unconditional love and non-judgmental uh, love. Well, it's one of the most beautiful things imaginable, really. And you made me just think of a story of mine with the Dalai Lama, because what we often lack in life is a model. You know, if someone who's going to display that and display a willingness to show vulnerability. And I mean, I've never heard the Dalai Lama, for example, burst into tears and then say, oh, I'm sorry. Well, and, and of course, what is there to be sorry for? Yeah, really. But we do, right? Oh, I'm so sorry. You, know? <laughs> and you see it on the news all the time. Somebody's weeping into some disaster and they say, oh, I'm sorry. And you think, why are you sorry? You know. Like, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I don't even remember how many years ago the Dalai Lama was speaking in Tucson. Uh, it was a long time ago. And it was like a conference. And the organizers had set it up so that he would teach in the morning and in the afternoon. And then in the evening, they had different... Western presenters. So Sylvia Borstein and I were the first night and there were, I don't know, maybe three or 4,000 people there. And which was certainly the largest group I had ever spoken in front of at that time. And uh, he thankfully was not in the room, but his throne was right behind us. And uh, we were the first night and we, oh, there's a woodpecker pecking on my house. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, we got through that first night and it was done. And I thought, oh, thank goodness. Now I'm really glad that it was the first night because now I can just enjoy the rest of the conference. So the Dalai Lama was teaching on this passage from Shanti Deva, this chapter from Shanti Deva, and he would teach. And then as Chupton Jumpa would be translating what he had just taught, he would flip, the Dalai Lama would flip ahead to the next passage he wanted to refer to in his teaching. So Maybe like three days later, he was doing that, and he was listening at the same time to Tupin Jumpa translating, and he stopped, and he said to Jumpa, that's not what I said. <laughs> and Jumpa said, yeah, it is what you said. And the Dalai Lama said, no, that's not what I said. And he said, yes, it is. And some very minor point they were going back and forth on. So the Dalai Lama flipped back to the passage that was in dispute, and he burst out laughing, and he said, oh, ha, 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 I made a mistake. <laughs> and I thought, look at that. You know, if it had been me making a mistake in front of those same, like, 4,000 people, first of all, would I have admitted it? <laughs> and second of all, would I have laughed about it? I don't think so. You know, it was such an amazing example of, here I am. You know, and so much kindness toward himself in that way. It's interesting because I, I think when you, and I, I hate to word hang, hang out, <laughs> but, you know, if you look at people like the Dalai Lama or Ama or Desmond Tutu, the extraordinary thing is they have this incredible sense of humor, even though they've gone through extraordinary amounts of suffering and pain. And it's sort of this idea of, of how uh, laughter and joy can in and of themselves be so beneficial. And it's, I think, very important as you go through life when you can look at 
sort of the ludicrous nature of some of these events or how is this even possible and not to diminish this you know the perhaps the pain and suffering behind it but just to sit there and go it's okay whether you make a mistake uh, whether you fail i remember when i uh, i guess is the word getting up in front of an audience and uh, i remember i was absolutely terrified and of course, you know, when you're fearful and anxious, you know, your executive control area shuts down and you're sort of in this uh, mode of not having access to uh, memories or experiences and you can't think of anything. It's interesting because the whole time thinking, oh, gosh, uh, you know, people are judging me. Nobody's going to like me. Somebody's going to come up and throw me off the stage. I'm an idiot. Why didn't I prepare enough, et cetera, et cetera. And oh. <laughs> Ultimately, I ended up going to a speaking coach, actually, and uh, spent some time uh, and really three sessions with me. And, well, he didn't tell me, think of the audience as naked. But, you know, he did give me some amazing advice that actually really calmed me down. And, uh, in fact, he gave me a stone also. He said, whenever you get anxious, just rub this stone and just pause and you'll be fine. And I used that for quite a while. But it's interesting now even though I'm sure I make a multitude of mistakes, it's not that I don't care, but it's just irrelevant to the point. And I think that's what people sort of need to understand about sort of going forward and being in front of an audience. And the other important point, I think, is it doesn't really matter what you say. It matters how you make people feel, right? This quote from Maya Angelou. One of the things you talk about in the new book is the nature of judgment and bias. And I think a lot of people don't understand what bias is and sort of how that can affect your perception of others. And I think it's actually a a real problem, whether we see it with various aspects of policing, whether we see it, how people perceive the other. Let's say if you're a Democrat, you have a perception of, of Republicans or vice versa. And maybe you can comment on that. Well, for me, a lot of that investigation comes down to looking at assumptions, looking for assumptions. And it's not that every assumption is incorrect, but a lot of them are, and they're fast. And before we know it, we have contoured our action, our speech, uh, or our holding back from action or speech around some assumption. And Uh, It's one of the kind of finer points of mindfulness is being able to see those kinds of thoughts because they are quick, come up, and uh, not to disdain them or or judge ourselves for them, but almost like ask ourselves, is that true? And operate from there. It's like once I had a friend who uh, told me she was going to have a piece, she's a sculptor, uh, she was going to have a piece in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and I happened to be going to Washington, D.C. So I went to the Portrait Gallery, and so this is a part of the Smithsonian, which actually implies a certain architecture, like vast corridors, you know, things like that. And I was walking up and down, and I could not find her piece. And I walked up and down and up and down and up and down, And I finally came to the thought, just my luck. I'm going to have to be the one to tell her. They decided to keep it in the basement, you know, and they didn't put it out after all. And just then I kind of casually, like, stretched my neck, and there was her piece up against the wall. 
And I had just made the assumption that it was going to be a freestanding piece in like the middle of the corridor. And it was not that. And she never told me it was going to be that. I never read anything that was going to be that. I just decided that's what it was going to be. And so even what I was looking at was narrowed and limited. Um, you know, we do that all the time with people. They look this way or I knew people like that or, you know, whatever. And so we're not really finding one another. We're not really connecting. And all it takes is actually seeing the assumption as an assumption and holding it in abeyance. It's not declaring it to be untrue because it's like a story, but it's waiting and actually checking out through through our direct impression or acquaintance with someone, something like what does seem to be the case. And we miss each other so much. And here too is another cause for loneliness is that we could be in relationship of some kind, but we've already declared that person as not interesting or worthless or hostile or whatever it is. I don't know if you ever saw it, probably not. It was a Heineken commercial. And it was interesting because they brought a group of people together, and I can't remember the exact purpose, but they were from very disparate backgrounds, politically, et cetera, et cetera. And they put put them together to have a conversation about something unrelated, but in this instance, they could all relate to, but it had nothing to do with politics, race, or anything. And they also had a bar there where they served Heineken. (laughs) But the important thing was that After a number of hours, these people were just sitting, chatting, and there was it wasn't a question about, you know, what separated you. It was a question about what brought you together and the power of that. And it overcame all of these perceptual biases that people have. I remember uh, one time I had made a fairly significant donation to charity And it was for uh, equine therapy, actually, for disabled veterans. And I found out that the organization had actually diverted most of my funds to support a dressage program for rich kids. (laughs) And because this was a horse park that was a nonprofit, I thought, and I had directed it where I wanted but the people on the board were fairly affluent. And they just, since I didn't specifically specify, they chose to give the money for this other cause, not the cause. And I, I frankly, I was absolutely livid. So I sued them. Now my wife said, you know, the money's already spent. Why do you do this? This is going to help you. We don't really have the money. And she was, all of those statements uh, on some level were true, but uh, I refused to let it go. And so I was at an attorney's office in, uh, in San Jose. And as you can imagine, in downtown San Jose, like many metropolis uh, metropolises you know there's not so good areas can be sort of dark and dank and it feels not particularly welcoming so i went out for lunch and um i was walking along to a gas station parking lot to a restaurant uh, and i was by myself and i i was be actually beating myself up because here i am spending all of this money and I'm sitting there going, God, am I just an idiot? Is this really uh, you know, a worthy cause? Why am I doing this? And I got a tap on my shoulder, and I look around, and there's a black youth. He's probably in his 20s. Uh, he's not particularly well-dressed. And he says, could you help me? My car broke down, and my mother and I you know, uh, would like to get home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, 
you know, I looked at him and now I'm challenged, right? I have this one experience where I've just beat myself up. Now I'm looking at this kid and normally I'm very generous. And I'm going, he's probably a drug addict. I don't see his mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I took out money and gave it to him. And I, I said to myself, damn it, why did I do that? And I said, but that being said, I'd rather make the wrong judgment because that amount of money is not going to change my life, but it could change his life. Even though I kept beating myself that I, up, I was an idiot. So I go down and I sit at this outdoor cafe and I'm sitting there. And then I feel another tap on my shoulder. <laughs> and this young man, he, he says to me, he says, you know, you were so nice to me. I wanted to introduce you to my mother. <laughs> <laughs> and you know again it, it was this uh extraordinary teaching if you will of having uh, belief in the basic uh humanity of people and not sort of making assumptions or judgments and it was a very very powerful lesson for me actually that's amazing because as i was sitting here I didn't think that's where the story was going <laughs> to He <laughs> pulled a gun on me. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, he didn't recognize him because he was in a different venue. He's going to do the same plea. And, and I thought, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, like. No, it, it, uh, it, it really was uh, uh, quite extraordinary, uh, which in, in some ways brings up, I think, related to the pandemic and sort of also the political environment that – when we have 24-7 news, these people are not our friends, per se, in the sense that they know what grabs human attention is fear. And as a result, that's what they peddle, whether it's true or false. It's very powerful. So we've seen these instances which have been promoted on TV of you know people doing bad things. But my statement, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is I believe that 95% of people are good and that given the right circumstance, they would demonstrate that. But unfortunately, we are often presented uh, with people being their worst selves. Well, there's another misquote from Maya Angelou. I mean, there's an actual quote, but the most popular form is, is a little bit of a distortion from that. But it's a really powerful quote, even in its misquoted form, which is basically when we know better, we do better. And, you know, I used to sit sometimes and teach with uh, my friend, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, and um, one of her favorite sayings is, uh, everyone's doing the best they can do. And I would sit there and think, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of corny and, you know, surely people could do better and but I was actually seeing the quotation from Maya Angelou, and I thought, well, actually, it's true. We are doing the best we could. If we had less ignorance, maybe we could do better. If we had different circumstances, maybe we could do better. If maybe somebody cared about us, you know, and was trying to help us, maybe we could do better. And so I think I would say, coming out of the Buddhist teaching, that probably 100% of people have a potential and that it's just not going to be actualized for many, many people. And... Yet, I was thinking also the other day, I was doing this video and uh, I went back to look at the transcript of the Dalai Lama's visit here uh, to the Insight Meditation Society in 1979, which I think might have been 
his first trip to North America. I was going to say, I, I think that was, in fact, yeah. Yeah, and he was visiting Bob Thurman in uh, Amherst, which is not that far from here, and teaching. And we were very young and bold and brash, and we dashed off a letter to the private office and said, maybe he'd like to come here too. And then we got a letter back saying he would. And uh, so that was the whole thing. And, uh, you know, His Holiness came, we gave him lunch and gave him a tour, and then we had a retreat that was ongoing that had been, it had lasted about two weeks at that point. And so we invited him to come to the hall and give a talk. So he gave a talk and then he asked for questions and some young man raised his hands and said, I've been meditating for two weeks and I've just decided I'm incapable of growth or change or learning. It's like, it's just not going to work for me. Like I don't have it in me. And, and the Dalai Lama looked at him and, kind of startled and you know that look he gets was like huh? <laughs> so he just kind of looked at him and he just said you're wrong you're just wrong <laughs> so i actually looked up the transcript to make sure i had it right and i did i said you're just wrong you know don't think so little of yourself because that's wrong that is a wrong assumption and you know and i i love that because it was like not mincing words it's like you're just wrong and knowing the young man and checking in with him afterwards he kind of liked it too you know I was like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> you know, but it's very hard. We're so far away from that potential, so many of us, and uh, it's hard to believe in it. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, and in some ways I hate to say it, uh, oftentimes meditation is the way for rich people to decrease their anxiety. And a lot of the events that uh, I've been invited to speak at or be involved with you know, it is primarily fairly affluent white people. But what amazes me sometimes is in conversation with some of these people, you'll talk about some of the social issues of our time. And they'll say, well, you know, the problem is they don't really want to work. <laughs> I've never met a poor person who doesn't want to work. <laughs> right. Or, well, you know, most of those people are drug addicts. Or, you know, if, if they really cared, uh, you know, they would go out and get a job and and you sit there and you look at these people and you try to explain the nature of, as an example, institutionalized racism, this idea of a minimum wage versus a living wage. As an example, I was, uh, and it shows you how, you know, your mind can do weird things. You know, I said, gosh, you know. I wish I was really rich because I wouldn't have to make that phone call. I wouldn't have to schedule this. I wouldn't have to do this stuff. And I, there would just be people who would take care of this stuff. And obviously, that was a very selfish perspective. But then I thought also to the idea of people who are poor. You know, uh, never in the narrative is, well, uh, she has to wake up at four in the morning to take the bus for two hours, do her job, leave her kids behind. Uh, come back on a bus for two hours when you're exhausted and and you're getting minimum wage and somehow think that your children are going to be perfectly fine, your rent's taken care of, et cetera, et cetera, when it's just completely false. And the sad thing is to have a significant portion of our population sort of believe this narrative, one, that poor people sort of deserve it because they're not working hard enough. But two, sort of the counter argument is, why do they deserve it? Well, there's that. And there's also, you know, it's a big problem. And I'm not sure of the 
resolution, but, you know, because we live so separately. We live in these little enclaves. And so um, it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you got a glimpse into the genuine life of that single mother, you know, who's working two jobs and can't afford health insurance or something, you know. But that's what really needs to happen for those myths to explode and for those assumptions to dissolve and for us to understand, well, people are people. There's a mix, you know, lots of different kinds of people in every social class. And uh, and yet it, it's that separation. It's that sense of disconnection. It's like I can remember years ago I was talking to a friend who is maybe somewhat older than I, and he was talking about his mother. And his mother uh, became really uh, captivated by watching Oprah's TV show. And she used to say to her son, I never knew. I never knew there was a thing like lesbian mothers. I never knew. You know, and she didn't know. And what she saw was a human being who was, you know, a particular category or, or situation, but it was a human being. And that's why I think in terms of politics, one of the uh, most successful movements has been gay rights because I saw that movie about Harvey Milk, like I don't know how many times, all my friends wanted to see it like individually, so I saw it many times. <laughs> and uh, there's this moment in his career where he's sitting in a room full of gay people. They've just lost something, like some election. And he just looks at them and says, everyone has to come out. Everyone has to come out of the closet. You call, your, call your parents right now. Call your people. Everyone has to come out because it has to be known that this is not the great other. This is your son. This is your cousin. This is your neighbor. And that's what's going to make the difference. He was totally prescient, you know, and and absolutely correct. That's what makes the difference. And I hear the same thing about people who are working to restore voting rights to ex-felons in Florida. You know, I said, what makes the difference? And because, you know, as you know, that's the kind of work that's in my book a lot. You know, people who are trying to engage in some way to make the world a, a better and different place. And and so I asked that one friend who's doing that work, and I said, what makes a difference? And he said, for them to actually hear the story. You know, this isn't just like an evil person. This is somebody who made a terrible mistake when they were a kid. And they have served their time. And and haven't you ever made a mistake? You know, and uh, it's a very different relationship when that person is not this abstract notion but is like a person. No, I, I think that's absolutely correct is, you know, I tell a story in my own book about being in front of this pre-med committee and, you know, my grades were certainly not stellar. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, I had had difficult circumstances as well, but, you know, I walk into this room and uh, they take my file and they throw it on the desk and, you know, they say, you know, uh, let's get this over with. And and this notion that somehow your life, who you are, your experiences can be translated into a grade point average in this particular instance. And that's what's really sad. The other aspect is this notion of tribalism. You know, people have a tendency to hang out with people who look like them, act like them, same socioeconomic class, perhaps culturally, perhaps based on race. And 
this gets to the notion of bias. You know, when you are in your tribe and you look outside your tribe, there's a narrative that's created that uh, actually doesn't promote connection. It promotes separation. You know, it's interesting. There was a study that was done with uh, intranasal oxytocin. And they gave it to a, peop- a group of people who, who, if you will, are in the same tribe. And when they got this, you know, they hugged each other. They had these incredible warm feelings. You know, they were very open. Uh, they felt uh, this incredible deep connection. And then when they off did that to gave a person the intranasal oxytocin to put them in a group of people who were not of their tribe, they absolutely had no feeling. And the interesting thing, though, was that there's a guy named David Destino, who's a social psychologist, and he did a study, and he showed that once people started in their mind saying, well, what is it about them that's like me? And as you go through this list, the more they did that, suddenly the effects are reversed because now you become part of their tribe. So it's certainly possible, I think, with effort to overcome sort of many of these notions of tribalism, but it's like other forms of bias. You actually have to work on it and be aware of it. In fact, actually, after our talk, I'm actually going to talk to a benefactor of the Sacramento Police Department. And uh, this is this whole notion of, you know, perception of the other biases and how can we imbue them with compassion? Because I think that's part of the problem is, you know, we've turned our police force in in the sort of militaristic way where it's us against them versus saying, how can I be of service to my neighbor? You know, and I think that's a serious problem, actually. Well, I think there's, you know, a very powerful role, again, for being able to see your own thoughts as thoughts. Because one of the things I learned uh, in working on this book, Unreal Change, was about attribution bias, um, which is basically, you know, what I was thinking of when you were talking about tribalism, you know, because attribution bias is basically, as far as I understand it, when uh, someone who is like in your tribe does something wrong, we tend to think, well, it was circumstances or they got in with the wrong crowd. They're not really like that. With the proper education, they would, they would be fine. Whereas somebody from the other tribe does something wrong, we think, oh, that's like an innate character flaw. They're like broken. You know, there's nothing that can be done. It's not circumstances and conditions. It's more ingrained in them. And we just do that. We attribute the damaging behavior of the other to like this unfixable flaw. Whereas our people, it's like, oh, yeah, just a little bit of help. Well, you know, it's interesting. Even in medicine, that's true. If you're a physician who is liked and respected and you make a mistake, everybody goes, well, you know, he's a great guy. He's got generally he's an excellent physician. This is an aberration that really is not reflective, blah, blah, blah. If they don't like you and you're an asshole, they go, see, you know, he it's predictable. He's always getting the problems, et cetera, et cetera. And they're much more harsh. And it's an interesting facet of uh, sort of the medical profession and how they monitor people. But these ideas of these types of biases, I, I think, permeate every part of our society. And I think this is why it's 
you know, critically important to uh, be mindful of that. Well, you mentioned Mathieu Ricard. I, I don't know when the last time you saw him was. Uh, he actually visited Stanford uh, right before the pandemic, and uh, he and I got to hang out a little bit. So that was a, a good memory to bring back, as well as our time together in, uh, in Sun Valley, uh, which was uh, a lot of fun. Let's see. What was the other thing I was going to ask you about? Maybe you could just comment on this idea of equanimity from your perspective and a Buddhist perspective and the power of that. Well, it's it's a very powerful concept. It's certainly a word that can be misunderstood. You know, we tend to hear equanimity and think of indifference or coldness or withdrawal from a situation or from life. And really within the Buddhist framework, it means balance. And it's the balance born of wisdom. It's perspective. It's the voice that says, I'm actually not in control of the universe. I will do everything I can to try to help this person or be of some service to help make a change. But in the end, it's not up to me, say, to determine the timetable of somebody's healing or or even to demand that it happen. You know, and if we get into that state of demand, then we're sunk, you know, because when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. You can't insist. And so equanimity doesn't mean indifference, but it's like a spaciousness of approach that actually enhances compassion. It doesn't diminish compassion. It's very hard to understand. And some of that, I think, really is just language. Like my first meditation teacher was this in Goenka in January of 1971. And it was an intensive 10-day kind of immersion course. And Goenka used to go around saying, be equanimous, be equanimous, be equanimous. And the rest of us would like whisper to one another, what does that mean? I don't know what that word is. What is that word? And even in the form of equanimity, it's so easy to misunderstand. But I'll tell you my favorite example of equanimity these days, which I talk about a lot, was um, – not too long after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, I was invited down there to do a workshop, and I did. And it was an amazing experience. And one of the young women there, this woman named Samantha, she raised her hand. And her mother is a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and where the shooting was. And she wasn't hurt, but she was there that day. And, and the whole community, of course, is very impacted by it all. And so Samantha raised her hand and she said, I'm having a really weird feeling because it's like amazing to all be together, to be with you, to hear these teachings, to learn about these tools. But I know the only reason this is happening is because that horrible thing happened. And I don't know how to get over that in order to appreciate this. And I said, I don't know that we ever get over it, but we learn to hold them both at once. And in, in Buddhism, we call that equanimity where our minds, our hearts are spacious enough to hold it all at once and to realize that we need both sides. Like if we connect to the suffering, to the pain, that brings us together. That's true. That's what we're all facing in some way. And it gives us compassion. But if we only connect to the suffering without some sense of possibility or openness or light, then we're sunk, you know, we just get bitter and, 
and despairing. And if we only connect to the light and the possibility, then we're just like lost in space. You know, we're, we're so disconnected from that experience. We need both. And we talked about, Samantha and I talked about the yin-yang symbol, you know, where there's the light spot in the dark part, and then there's the dark spot in the light part. So two years later, when my book was actually coming out, September 1st, I had a series of things that are up on YouTube, including this panel that I moderated with people from Parkland. And Samantha was on the panel. So I said, hey, Samantha, remember that conversation we had a couple of years ago about equanimity? And she said, not only do I remember it, she said, I think about it every single day of my life. She said, that's like my North Star. And it was like so moving to me. And she just sent me an email about a podcast she was on where she talked about equanimity. And that's actually my favorite example. Instead of feeling like we're pulling back from everything, we're opening ourselves enough to be able to see it all and hold it all. Well, I think on that note, which is a very powerful one, I think I've probably taken up enough of your time, although I'm sure we could go on for a few more hours. We'll do another one. And I do want to uh, uh, tell people about your book, Change, and really recommend that, especially in these uh, very challenging times, because uh, it covers really pretty much all we've talked about, uh, plus a whole lot more. And I think it will be very enlightening to a lot of people. And I always love to see you and spend a bit of time with you. So thank you so much. And I'll look forward to our next interaction. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.